Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Today's special episode is by Arazu Ferrazon, PhD candidate at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada. Her work focuses on Mediterranean cross-cultural mercantile networks in the early modern period. Her most recent presentations have focused on the city of Marseille as a nodal point for economic and cultural connections. Today's talk is about Jews, particularly merchants, in Marseille from the 13th to the early 16th centuries, how they navigated a complex political world as a religious minority, and the cultural, legal, and economic impact they left on this city and the Mediterranean world. It was the year of 1248, and Giraudier Malric, a notary in Marseille's lower town, was engaged in preparing and notarizing commercial contracts. A spring particularly was a peak season for Malric's business and a perfect time for merchants who eagerly waited on the docks of the old port to embark on their long journeys across the Mediterranean. Shipmasters ensured the accuracy of their galleys' inventories as merchants and ship crews loaded cargoes of goods leaving for other port cities across the vast sea. Among the merchants soliciting Emelric's services were Joseph and Solomon, sons of the late Mosse de Plermo, a Jewish resident and citizen of Marseille. That spring, Emelric prepared several contracts for the Palermo brothers in association with both Jewish and Christian merchants. He drew up an agreement between Joseph and Vital Negrel to leave for Bougie on board the merchant galley of Saint-François, and a similar one with Griston, son of Bon Seigneur Montaigne. His brother Solomon made 42 pounds and 20 dinars profit from a commenda with Pierre Griston for Sicily. It was a commercial deal previously arranged by his partner, Mosse Diacon, and witnessed by three Christians. Amalric also arranged for a contract between Solomon and Nicholas Merenia for a voyage to Messina. These business and sometimes personal associations forged by the Palermo brothers are examples of mercantile engagements carried on by a modestly populated community of Jews residing in the port city of Marseille. Hi, this is Arzo Ferozan, and thank you for joining me in this episode of the French History Podcast. In this episode, we explore a commercially important and vibrant community of Jews in Marseille and observe their economic activities during the High Middle Ages, when the city was at the height of its commercial prominence. My interest in studying the early history of Jews in Marseille sparked from my curiosity about Mediterranean port cities. The diversity and versatility of commercial port cities like Marseille make a fascinating narrative of cross-cultural and cross-religious interconnectedness. In Marseille, this fusion of religion and commerce was possible and mercantile associations between Jewish 
and Christian merchants to facilitate long-distance trade. While many Jews were small-scale merchants, this did not diminish their essential role as intermediaries and manufacturers of various goods destined for other Mediterranean cities. The story of Jews in Marseille is worthy of exploring because it tells us of the historical continuity of interfaith relations in pursuit of commerce among the port cities of the Mediterranean. It also helps us understand Jews' significance in European commerce before their historical expulsion in 1492 from Western Europe. Jews had a long history of settlement and trade in Marseille. As citizens, they took part in the city's communal and commercial life. As minority religious groups, they received protection, renewed or changed from time to time by the rulers of Provence. The early surviving of such document confirming their legal status is a compact from the year 1219 between the Bishop of Marseille and the municipality. Christian Marseille in general were tolerant towards the Jews of their own city. Usually daily quarrels between Jews and Christians amounted to insults, hateful verbal exchanges, and petty monetary cases. Of course, there were some restrictions against Jews, but often they had their roots in anti-Jewish sentiments beyond Marseille's municipal decision. For instance, the inability to hold public office, testify against Christians, and prohibition to work on Sundays and Christian feast days came from the Catholic Church. The application of these laws regionally, however, was inconsistent in Marseille. Whatever religious antagonism expressed by the municipal stakeholders or the Catholic Church was neither widespread nor supported by the Council of Provence, who ruled the city beginning from the first half of the 13th century. From Charles of Anjou to King Rune of the Angevin dynasty, who died in 1480, Jews held a protected and legal status, especially for discriminatory acts against their faith. Even officials such as inquisitors, bailiffs, and royal officers had no choice but to obey such regulations. Often protection required payment of some sort by Jews, like gifts or special tax, usually paid directly to the counts. These protections and privileges range from preventing access tax to punishing officials for accepting personal property from Jews, forbidding surcharge on letters of justice, confirming the right to live in Christian neighborhoods, awarding trade privileges, void of faith-based discrimination, and so on. In 1403, a position called Conservator of the Liberties of Jews appeared in archival documents. This body was responsible for ensuring the application of the communal rules and protection rights. In 1463, King Rune even allowed Jews to bring forward their grievances directly to the king and dismiss several allegations laid by Christian citizens. As French historian Adolphe Crémieux argued, Jews in Marseille during the Middle Ages were neither inferior nor were they outcasts of the city. They were considered equal citizens with their faith as a mark of distinction. For at least two centuries, Marseille Christians did not see them as foreigners or as a threat to their Catholic faith. The extension of such protective measures allowed Jews to reside in Marseille and move freely around the city. They could acquire real estate and play an integral part in the city's commerce in various professions. While most were merchants, others worked as tax collectors, physicians, apothecaries, weapon makers, 
coral workers, porters, investors, and a few many lenders. Jews clustered in two different quarters, with the majority living in the lower town, like the Palermo brothers, and others resided in the upper town, near the fortress. Until 1348, when Queen Joanna I of the House of Anjou united the city, Marseille had three separate jurisdictional bodies within the city walls. The upper town, also known as the Episcopal City, the lower town, and the small district of Prevote around the cathedral, looked after by its church canons. The upper town had four quarters where mostly notable communities of scholars, physicians, some nobles, agricultural laborers, fishers, and artisans resided. The commercial center of the city was the lower town, which is where most merchants resided and conducted business. It extended mainly from the old port to the city's northern hills, with the upper town residing right above its territory. This bustling and busy neighborhood also housed the judicial sector, the administrative buildings, and the notarial shops. Giraud de Almeric's notarial office operated from this neighborhood near Marseille's docks next to many changers, which was easily accessed by the merchants in need of officiating commercial contracts. A wall surrounded and enclosed the three jurisdictions, and a chain secured the entrance to the port until 1423. Six main gates penetrated the city walls, and around seven significant markets contributed to the local and global economy. Jewish households remained around 10% of the city's population, about 2,000 households out of 20,000 by the beginning of the 14th century. Archaeological evidence traces Jewish settlement to around the 4th century AD in several southern French port cities, including Burgundy and Provence, where they migrated to barter and trade. Some suggest that they had arrived earlier with the Roman legions, a migratory practice that was not uncommon for Jews. The earliest documented references specific to Jews in Marseille is a letter sent in 591 AD by Gregory of Tours to the Bishop of Marseille. It suggests that he was intervening on behalf of the Jews against the bishop's insistence to convert a group of Clermont Jews who took refuge in the city. Therefore, it's possible that a community of Jews existed in Marseille already. We know that by the time Rabbi Benjamin of Tudela, a well-known Jewish traveler, visited Marseille in 1165, there was a successfully established community with synagogues, a hospital, schools, an almhouse, a meat market, and a woman's bath. Jewish cemetery existed beyond the city walls, not too far from their quarters. Tudela recorded, three days to Marseille, a city containing many eminent and wise men. The 300 Jews from two congregations, one of which resides in the lower town on the coast of the Mediterranean and the other in the upper part near the fortress. The latter supports a great university and boasts of many learned scholars. An extensive trade is carried on in the city, which stands on the very coast. By the high Middle Ages, Jews lived among a majority of Christian population. The Jewry quarters of the lower town was on the Saxena of Saint Martin which was one of the six administrative bodies with a minor city gate called the Gate of Jewry that was leading to their neighborhood. These early concentrated communities were means to promote cohesion and communal organization. Indeed, this practice seemed more necessary by Jews in regions with a majority Christian or Muslim population, as cities grew 
and diverse demographics became a distinguishing characteristics in many places like port cities. The vital point to note is that Marseille's Jewish neighborhood was accessible from other city gates and not restricted for either Jews or Christians to move in and out of the quarters. They could even change between the two towns, but with permission like the rest of the residents. Like other inhabitants of Marseille, Jews were connected to sea life in one way or another. Evidence shows that in places like port cities, there were more ample economic opportunities for Jews. Thus, the studies now tend to move away from the concept of Jews as money lenders only. But it's important to note that while money lending in Marseille was not a common occupation for Jews, there were a few wealthy families that involved in seaborne trade and money lending. Economically modest Jews, in contrast, borrowed money from well-to-do Christians, or at least those are the records that have been preserved. Municipal regulations allowed lending between Jews and Christians as a form of loan at interest. Between 1252 and 1257, Charles of Anjou regulated loans at the rate of three dinars per livre per month or 15% as a whole annually. In 1272, the church proscribed lending, but in practice, it did not completely disappear. From 1354, Queen Joanna I changed the interest to 10% per annum, no matter which party loaned the money, Christian or otherwise. The legally notarized promissory notes suggest that Jews were indiscriminately part of Marseille's legal system concerning borrowing, lending, and trading. Smaller-scale Jewish merchants in particular often borrowed money from wealthy or well-to-do Christians, most likely because of existing mercantile associations they had with each other. For example, in September of 1278, Bonjuras promised to reimburse Frere Lyotard the 17 livre he borrowed from him previously in Rome. Boniface, son of the late Cresson, and his wife put their house in Jewry quarters of the lower town in Collateral for many received in wheat in 1235 from a Christian trading house. We know this because his wife, Bonadonna, agreed to pay Bernard Monduel, a Christian merchant, 25 pounds in royal crowns. Their daughter, Mirona, also agreed to a loan repayment in September of the same year, mortgaging her property in the lower town, as her guarantors were Guillaume Boucher, Bonsiac, son of the late Bon David Grassi, and a Christian by the name of Raymond Rufi, also living in St. Martin quarters near the Jews. Some wealthier Jewish merchants did not hesitate to put their family fortune or acquire wealth from other businesses towards money lending. Bon Devant de Draguignon was one of the wealthiest and professionally versatile Marseille. He ventured into maritime trading, money lending, financing commercial voyages, investing in agricultural production, livestock breeding, and real estate. In the 14th century, the family's business and wealth reached its highest prosperity through Bondevant's commercial ventures. The protection Jews received from the Angevin rulers of Provence throughout the 14th century contributed to Bondevant's success. His family was among the creditors of the Angevin dynasty rulers. Generations later, his great-grandson, Banjusen, still had a good relationship with Queen Mary of Anjou in the 1380s. Indeed, it was Banjusen who convinced Queen Mary to remove the prohibition of work on Saturdays and Sundays for Jews starting in 1387. 
As for Bondavan, he was reportedly an honest man who gained his client's trust over the years with his ethical and professional conduct. His client base was mostly Christians and of official and noble status. Between 1309 and 1361, Bondavan granted 408 debts to around 252 borrowers, of which 99% were Christians. Approximately 60 of them were his regular clients, with the highest loan amount at 311 livres. For instance, Pierre Vital and his brother Bertrand borrowed money frequently between 1332 to 1338. An official by the name of Pierre Guerin had 11 loans. A money changer by the name of Hugo Lager agreed that he was in debt of 61 pounds to Bondevant's father and from Bondevant himself, 600 florins. Bondevon also had other clients who made just over 10% of his loan base, including artisans, gardeners, churchmen, and merchants. His Christian clients trusted Bondevon and frequented his home, which he used as his business headquarters. He even hired a Marseille Christian by the name of Fadi Edbra as a lawyer to defend his disputed cases. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. The origin of Bondevant's family settlement in Marseille is unclear. However, by the 14th century, they occupied a substantial house in the Juvery quarters of the lower town near many Christian residents. Bondevant inherited his father, Abraham de Dragon's estate, according to his will and testament, in 1316. Their house was on the intersection of Rue de Sillon and Rue de la Fontaine-Juve, adorned with a garden, orchards, and a courtyard which he expanded further over the years. When Bondevant's father, Abraham, died, he passed on his estate to his daughter, Bonadana, and his older son, Mose. He made Bondevant his universal heir. Bondevant married twice. His first wife, Duchita, was the daughter of a banker and trustee. Bondevant himself held the office of the trustee on several occasions in the last decades of the 14th century. Apart from money lending, Bondevant expanded his wealth through real estate acquisitions, maritime trade, and vineyards. In 1360, he handled business for 15 vineyards, nine other lands, a hazelnut grove, rental properties around saint Marseille and the lower town. In 1325, he bought a vine from Jacques Grassin, expanding his already owned plot around Abenye. Five years later, he acquired two houses around St. Augustine, and a few years later, he bought land from a noble by the name of Guillaume of St. Giles. He also granted land for agricultural production. For example, in 1350, he made an agreement with a plowman by the name of Raymond J for 320 acres of land for cultivation. He was one of the few Jews involved in shipbuilding that we know of, 
such as his investment in the construction project of the galley of St. Louis. Van de Van's estate eventually passed on to his great-grandson, Van Jusen Van de Van. Van Jusen married Bonfi, the daughter of Leon Passepé, another royalty merchant and an associate of his father. Van Jusen became an orphan at a young age and was left under the care and guidance of Passepé. He also became a successful licensed physician. Through his wealth and political connections to the Counts of Provence, he became a powerful man like his great-grandfather. His father-in-law and mentor helped him maintain the family heritage by granting sharecropping land. Between 1376 to 1389, he made contracts for 12 loans over 1,000 florins to some of the most prominent nobility, such as the Vivals, Martins, Soler, and Favas families, all larger-scale merchants. The diversity of Bondevant's client base and his business ventures demonstrate a sense of trust between him and his Christian clients, and how Jews enjoyed a period of commercial prosperity under the Angevin dynasty's protection. The longevity of Abraham's establishment, fortune, and stability through his heirs also suggests that Marseille Jews could further their profession and wealth despite their religious identity. The family managed a client base of the most affluent families in Marseille, these relationships expanded their networks and diverse commercial ventures. Apart from a few wealthy families like Bondevans and his family, most Jews were small-scale tradespeople. As Marseille slowly transformed from an emporium to a Mediterranean commercial harbor by the Middle Ages, the need for merchants who would take the risk of traveling across the sea to buy and sell goods increased. For Jewish merchants with modest means, seaborne trade provided excellent opportunities to form partnerships as intermediaries and business associates. The contracts to transport and trade goods in and out of Marseille usually took place with agreed-upon terms in a trade contract or a commander like the ones carried on by the Palermo brothers. The commander involving Jewish merchants or agents were generally on a 75 to 25 profit margin and each side acted either as a tractator or as a commentator. A tractator was responsible for the shipping and handling of the merchandise. The commentator was the passive partner and gave two-thirds of the capital, and the active partner or the tractator supplied one-third. Unless the traveling merchant had his own capital, the contract would remain on a unilateral basis, otherwise bilateral, which was at a margin of 50-50. The most active ports that Jewish agents traveled were Acre and Bougie. Other destinations were Ceuta, Messina, Sicily, and Valencia, and several other ports in the Levant and Barbary regions. On April 27, 1248, a certain Duzian Sanvator, a Christian, signed a command to Joseph de Palermo for 10 pounds of silk and 28 bezels of good silver to Bougie. Duzan was a money changer who dealt with Jewish and Christian merchants frequently in 1248. On the same day at Duzan's contract, Bonfils, son of the late Duran Abraham, commissioned Joseph for an order worth 79 value of mixed money, leaving for Bougie. Benassiet, son of Bonfils, received a saffron order for Acre, and he gave an order for 27 livres of mixed coins to purchase sulfur to three other merchants leaving for Valencia. 
In safer conditions of the sea, merchants preferred unilateral commande and sometimes took several of them together. They even hired other merchants as agents to acquire merchandise on their behalf while they traveled to a different destination. One industry in particular reveals Jews as both merchants and manufacturers, the coral business. The coral industry was a lucrative operation of Marseille since antiquity. Marseille merchants penetrated the Mediterranean Sea for coral not only from the coasts of Provence, but also from Catalan, Naples, Sicily, Corsica, and North Africa. The coral was unique and valuable because the funding organizing expeditions, recruiting procurers and fishers, and hiring expert corallers required time and large capital. Mostly larger-scale Christian trading houses were involved in these expeditions. There were other Christians who made partnerships, like Marcia's mariners Jean Armand and Pierre Arfier and Antoine Fabry from Nice. They established an equally shared company around Provence's coastline in 1381. Some wealthy Jewish merchants, namely Profage, de Montaigne, and Passepaire, invested in this business as well. Between 1381 and 1383, Passepaire made several coral orders, one for Allegro and four for the Levant. He was wealthy enough to offer 880 florins worth of coral to two Christian merchants leaving for Alexandria. Other Marseille Jews took part as a small agents or as expert corals like brothers Fuson and Mousan Solomon. In one year, a merchant will sometimes take several trips to bring raw coral and other times to sell coral goods manufactured in Marseille. Business usually took place directly between the coral operator and the trader interested in coral with a fixed price in advance. In 1379, the price of a quantal of coral was 70 florins. It reached 80 florins in 1380. Of course, the merchant ships did not carry coral alone. Other common goods were oil, textile, and wine from Marseille. A certain Bonifu, son of the late Astruc, made an order of coral with Guillaume Morbon to leave for Bougie. Jean Soler made a contract for 10 livres to his coral worker Hugo Bonfils for Bougie on the same merchant galley. Ron Poskia took an order worth approximately 48 livres boarding for Acre. He later entrusted a coral cargo to two Jewish merchants, Salomon Alaban and Ben Judah of Nimes, worth 650 livres. Salomon and Ben Judah were responsible for taking the cargo to Genoa or Siena on board a Genoese merchant ship. By the 14th century, most of the coral manufacturing business was in the hands of the Jews. Because of the high-quality coral value, Christian investors hired the most reputable Jewish corallers but monitored them diligently. One of the most sought-after and essential parts of the coral business was crafting or manufacturing raw coral goods. Most manufacturers worked for Christian trading houses, even those who had their own shops. The Jews relied on their expertise and reputation to get hired as polishers, mostly on contract. For instance, Solon Davant worked for six years for Guillaume de Carry in its shop. Petit Bonfils worked for Nicholas Braxifor for seven years. In 1383, Julian de Cazacs, a wealthy Christian merchant, granted Salve Petit a contract to work 
exclusively for him and pay a hefty fine if he left the city before his contract was over. In Kazakh's shop, his wife minded his business and observed the workers diligently. We know more about Christian trading houses who employ Jewish corals because in 1380, several larger-scale merchants, including Julian the Kazakhs, brought a dispute case against 22 Jewish corollers. Among them were Fusan and Musan Solomon. The brothers were experts in their field and even had their own shop. The trading houses accused the Jewish corollers of stealing 24 florins of gold from the merchant's shops where each of them worked. Kazakh's wife testified against Jewish corollers since she was the one monitoring their work. To win the case, they relied on prejudices against Jews such as theft and dishonesty to damage their reputation. It certainly did not help that the Solomon brothers had their own shop because it was assumed that they would craft and sell the merchandise quickly. Interestingly enough, we find that Jews sometimes testified against each other in some cases, demonstrating the stiff competition among the quarrelers. To the dismay of the trading houses, this case ended in Jewish quarrelers' favor, and the Solomon brothers continued with their business as usual. As for the rest of the merchants, some remained and continued, and others like Mimon moved to Allegro in 1395. In this manner, the Jews of Marseille continued to take part in the city's commerce under the Angevin ruler's protection. The Christian trading houses did not stop hiring Jews despite periodic business conflicts, at least not until the late 15th century, when the religious and political climate of Western Europe began to take a turn against Jews. The economic participation of Jews and civic privileges came to a slow and steady decline by the last decades of the 15th century, leading to their eventual and final expulsion in 1501 from Marseille. Records referring to Jews in the coral trade disappear after this period. There were internal and external factors that led to how Christian Marseille began to see their Jewish neighbors as a threat. The political and religious climate of the Mediterranean had changed since the 14th century. The rise of anti-Semitic sentiments in Europe did not leave Marseille untouched. Before Marseille became a French city by the end of the 15th century, in 1305, Philip IV already imprisoned and seized Jews' positions, and he expelled around 100,000 from French territories. In the next few decades, riots and discriminatory attacks occurred in several southern cities of France as well and resulted in the eventual expulsion by the end of the 14th century. In Spain and Portugal, anti-Semitic reactions led to the pogrom of 1391 and caused a slow migration of Jews from these regions. The eventual expulsion from the Iberian Peninsula that began in 1492 created a new diaspora of Jews and changed their center of concentration from Western Europe to the East. In Marseille, when the King of Aragon seized the city in 1423, many Jews migrated in fear of persecution. There is evidence of hostility growing across Provence from around 1469 and gradually increasing over the next 30 years, even though they were still legally citizens of the city and had a protection order in their favor as late as 1463. When the French crown occupied Marseille, the first wave of conversions began in Provence after King Rone, who favored Jews, died. The city lost its semi-independent governorship. 
While Louis XI renewed the old privileges for a short period, Charles VIII, a devout Christian who favored leading a crusade against Turks, showed no interest in protecting Jews either. A general expulsion sent around 200 families to Sardinia, many without their properties because of public protests accusing them of usury and other imaginary crimes. Marseille Jewish community faced the harsh decision of expulsion in 1489 by the order of Louis XII. Most of the Jews began to take refuge in Africa, Italy, and Ottoman-controlled territories. These events in Marseille and the surrounding French cities profoundly affected how Marseille Christians negatively reacted towards Jews, leading to a final expulsion in 1501. In 1515, there were still some traces of Jews until they disappeared entirely from the records. Some of their properties were entrusted to converts and others acquired by Christians. Any remaining records of their community were most likely destroyed when Marseille's later urbanization in 1911 around Saint-Martin and the destruction of the quarters. Lost and unpreserved documents do not allow us to make any more conclusions. It would take a century and a half for the French crown to invite Jews back to Marseille. Nevertheless, these early mercantile activities that we discussed show that a vibrant and commercially active community of Jews existed in Marseille during the High Middle Ages. They had a long history of continuity, not only as moneylenders, but as intermediaries and manufacturers of goods. Jews' expulsion in the 15th century did not stop their commercial ventures. It just shifted their point of settlement and concentration to the east of the Mediterranean, in particular to the Ottoman-controlled port cities. They had a long history of continuity not only as moneylenders, but as intermediaries and manufacturers of goods. Jewish expulsion in the 15th century did not stop their commercial ventures. It just shifted their point of settlement and concentration to the east of the Mediterranean, in particular to the Ottoman-controlled port cities. Theirs is a story for another time. This has been Ars of Firozan with French History Podcast. Thank you for listening. Until next time. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.